you have your Bible or a smartphone, some device, you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews is in the New Testament. Um, It's one of the longer books towards the end of Scripture. So if you get back there and see 1st and 2nd Timothy, keep going. See Revelation, come back this way. All right. Was your turning to to Hebrews 8, just a little bit of quick recap as we get started. Um, We here at Redeemer try to, about 99% of the time, we're just preaching through a book, chapter by chapter, looking at it over the course of weeks or months or however long is necessary to make our our way through it. So we've been in Hebrews now for several weeks. Um, Hebrews is a letter that was written by an unknown author to a group of believers who had come out of, of Judaism. And so they're Jewish background believers, so they're familiar with the law, they're familiar with the prophets, they're familiar with the teachings of the Old Testament. And Judaism at this time in the first century is legal, Christianity is illegal, and the church is, is literally is just struggling with, hey, we're, we're beginning to face some persecution, we're beginning to face some difficulty. Um, would it be easier for us if we just kind of step back into Judaism? And the author of Hebrews is just as vehemently, as strongly as he can, is writing these, these really in-depth arguments of why they should not do that. Of how Jesus is better than the priestly system. Of how Jesus is better than the prophets. How Jesus is better. And, and he's just holding Jesus up and he's saying, stay with him. Because if you leave him, you're leaving salvation. That there is one way to the Father and it's through the Son. And so he's just wanting us to to once again to look at and to consider Jesus as sufficient for us. That he is enough regardless of the circumstances that we're facing in life. That he is enough. That he has obtained for us our salvation. And so let's pick up in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. 
For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All right, so in chapter 8, what what we're beginning to see is that the author of Hebrews is, is saying, look, I'm making a singular point. That is, we talked last week about um, the priestly line of Melchizedek, right? This mysterious kind of Old Testament Genesis figure. As he's talked about, they're not wanting them to walk away from the faith. The fact that Jesus will hold them to the end, that there's assurance. That he's saying, look, we have hope because we have a high priest who has made us right with God. He has given us assurance. He has given us encouragement. He is telling us to stand strong. We see he's given us access back to the Father. And so remember, as he's writing to a, a predominantly Jewish background audience, what he is telling them is this. It's like, look, you understood the priestly system, and I'm telling you that Jesus is a different kind of high priest. He is a better high priest. And we, we saw a little bit of that last week, but let's look at some of the things he's going to continue in this argument. In verse 1, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Right? He just paints this beautiful and poetic picture saying, look, our high priest is actually, right, he's in the presence of the throne. Right? He is with the Father. He's in the heavens and he is seated. Right? Because the idea, if you were to picture the, the priesthood, it would not have been a, a picture of like serenity, right? Of people sitting around going, wish we had something to do. It would have been hustle and bustle. There were no seats in the tabernacle. There were no seats in the temple area where sacrifices were done because there were always more sacrifices to be made. There was always constant work and running and moving about. Because not only were priests needing to make sacrifices on behalf of people who were consistently and constantly sinning, but they themselves were sinners. And so the picture and the contrast that the author is saying is, look, Jesus is with the Father and he is seated because the work is done. It has been accomplished. The sacrifice that was made once for all is done and finished and Jesus is there. And so he's like, you, you have this tendency to want to go back to, the, to Judaism with the priestly system that is busy and hectic. And I'm telling you that the work has been accomplished. Why would you go back to that? The second thing he's going to say is, look, that our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he's saying, look, he, he has access to the place that God has created. Because he's God, right? Because he's the son. He's there. So if we look back in Exodus, when Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law, when he was receiving the Ten Commandments and the Covenant, one of the things he was given, and we see this in Exodus 25 through 30, um, is he was given like the tabernacle's dimensions and what it should look like and what it should be made up of. And he saw it. Now, we don't know if, he, if like the Lord made him a model and said, model it after this. Or if he gave him a, a, a vision of what the, the holy place in heaven looks like. But he saw something. And he was meant to model the tabernacle after it. Chapter 9 will go into more detail into what that actually looks like and why it looked like that. But he's saying, look, the, 
the priestly system of Judaism, right, are men who are always busy because they're, they're sinners themselves, making sacrifices they'll never stop, in a place that was built by human hands. Our high priest is sitting with God the Father in the heavenly places. It's not a copy. It's not a shadow. It's not a model of it. It is the place, the place. He is with the Father. The third thing he's saying, look, if you, if you continue to need to see that Jesus' high, high priestship is greater, verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. We knew this was one of the roles of the priest. Thus it is necessary for this priest, meaning Jesus, also to have something to offer. But what does Jesus offer? Himself. Right? He gives himself holy perfect, without spot or blemish to be sacrificed on our behalf. He's not simply sacrificing animals that others have brought in. He gives himself to satisfy the wrath of God towards sin and rebels. To appease him, he gives himself. The fourth thing is this. He continues um, in verse 5. They serve a copy of of the shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. He's referring to Sinai. But as it is in verse six, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. And so if you can follow the, the argument here, he's saying, look, the Melchizedek in that line of priests, is greater than the priestly system because Jesus is going to be the priest forever. He's never, he's never going to like go away. He's going to be our priest interceding on our behalf forever. Just like Melchizedek's line doesn't stop. The priestly line does. When people die, right, it's done. And they, they keep having to have more priests because they keep dying. He then says this. So, the, so Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Aaron's, Right? And he's like, the covenant that Jesus is going to bring us is greater than the old covenant. And Jesus being in bodily form on earth is better than the tabernacle. And it's better than the temple where God was separated away. We knew he was present, but we were separated from him. And now God comes in tabernacles. He dwells among us. He walks with us in bodily form in Jesus. So he's showing that there's a progression that each of these things are better than the first that came. And last week we, we called these things types. Then in the Old Testament there were, there were symbols or shadows or types that were showing. And they were given by God to begin to lay out a foundation of what was coming and what he was going to do through Jesus. So that we can look back and see a more perfect form and function when Jesus shows up. Right? We see this in the flood. Right? We talked about that one last week. That the flood was God's wrath against sinners. We begin to see how he feels against rebellion and sin. And in the New Testament, the wrath of God's anger and judgment is poured out not on the many, but on the one, on the innocent one, on Jesus, on behalf of the rebels. So we see this picture of how God feels about sin, and then we avoid the flood of judgment if we are in Christ, right? Because of the cross. These are our types giving us a beginning picture. And so... You can almost imagine, right, that spiritually speaking, this is you laying in bed at night, right? Especially when you were young and there would be a shadow in your room 
And you're like, I think I know everything in my room. But whatever that is, is kind of freaking me out, right? And you're, you just need some light so that you can see the form. You, you, you think you know, you can kind of see, but you want to see more clearly. And then the light comes on and you see in reality what it was that the shadow was only showing in part, right? And Jesus steps in as the reality, He's not the shadow. He is showing what the priestly system and what the tabernacle and what the prophets and all these things in the Old Testament were trying to show us. And it was a little blurry and it was a little hazy. And then he steps in and says, all of those things for thousands of years are pointing to me. I am the rescue plan that God has enacted to bring you back to the Father. That the shadows now fade away because a new covenant is here. And so he says, listen... Our high priest is ministering under a different covenant. He's going to mediate. He's going to be the go-between between us and God. A better covenant. And a covenant was a promise. And so if we, if we know our Old Testament, the priestly system were working under an old promise from God. If we look in Exodus 24, this is after Moses comes off Mount Sinai, after God has rescued his people out of the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt. He begins to give them the Ten Commandments. He begins to give them laws and regulations and sacrificial systems and all of these things. And in chapter 24, um, he says this in verse 7. Then Moses, he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. So he's reading everything God has given him to the people who God has just rescued by miracles and signs and wonders out of, out of Egypt. And he reads it in the hearing of the people. And here's what they said. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And so as you think of Christianity, we often think of Christianity in terms of list, of rules, of regulations, of do's and don'ts. And much of that is coming out of the Old Covenant, right? Of, hey, here's what God anticipates. Here's what God wants. Here's what God expects from us. Now listen, the important thing for us to remember with the Old Covenant was God rescued them first, and then he gave them the covenant, right? They're not hanging out in Egypt trying real hard to do good, and God finally says, well, you've you've tried hard for long enough, so let me rescue you out. God, by his gracious Right, benevolence, reaches in and rescues them, leads them through the wilderness, leads them to Mount Sinai to, to reveal himself, to give them himself and the law. And he says, now that I've rescued you, after your rescue, here's the things I want you to do that will rightly reflect my character, that will show the world that you belong to me. Here's what I expect of you. That came after the rescue. But this old covenant was not what was different than the one that, that we have now, right? They had to see and they had to hear. There's a reason that they're constantly being told, I want you to remember what God has done. I, w- I want you to reenact the Passover every year, right? I want you to, to eat the meal with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand with eating the same meal as when God pulled us out of Egypt. Why? Because they were not filled with the Holy Spirit, Right? They're having to remember the things that God has said, the things that God has done. It's why they were in constant need of leaders like Moses, of prophets. They had to trust what was revealed, what they heard God say and what they saw 
God do? Because the Holy Spirit would come in and out at this point. You see him falling on David and see him right moving and coming. He wasn't just here and present. And so in verse 9, it says, They did not continue in my covenant. The fault in this covenant was that the people of God did not keep it. They rebelled against it. And if you are in the Old Testament for any length of time, you see this roller coaster of the people of God trying hard, doing good, honoring God, and they're elevated. And then they begin to think, well, we're pretty awesome. And then they're crushed and overtaken and taken into exile. And they're beaten down. And then they say again, oh, God, we need you. We want you. And then they begin to pursue him again. And it's just this roller coaster of them following God, of thinking that they don't need God, of them following God, of them thinking they don't need God. And it was because their intent, their desire to follow him did not have enough power behind it. Their willpower was not sufficient. Romans 8 will say it this way, that the law came to reveal to us we have a need and we can't meet that need. The law is showing us as much as we try, as hard as we try, we cannot satisfy it. And so they would have sacrifices and so much of their faith and and their, their religion was external. It was through ceremonies and meals and remembrances. It was doing something. But their willpower could not meet their heart's intent. We see this immediately as Moses is on Mount Sinai, as the people have seen God like move and shake this mountain, as they've been terrified to touch it lest they die. After Moses is gone for a few weeks, they're like, I think we better make a golden calf, right? And then they they make a cow to worship because they're already forgetting what God has done when they've seen him bring water out of a rock. They've seen him bring food on the ground. They've seen him open the Red Sea. They've seen miracles as he's led them out of Egypt. They're seeing these things. They're like, ah, what have you done for me today, God? And their intent to follow him and to be obedient cannot be matched by their ability to keep it. Listen, many of us have, we have felt this struggle To say, I want to do the things of God and I'm trying to do it and I'm trying to hold on and I'm trying to climb. And we continue to restart. We're like, okay, today I'm going to do it. Okay, right now I'm going to do it. Okay, on New Year's Day I'm going to do it, right? And and we we lay out this plan of how I'm going to read my Bible for this amount of time. And I'm going to pray this amount of time. And I'm going to to be kind to my siblings. And I'm going to be generous. And we we start to lay out laws and regulations and things so that we can please and honor God. And our intents are good and our willpower cannot keep up. And what he is saying is the law reveals that we cannot get ourselves to the Father. Our ability to be religious is... And obedient will not be sufficient to get us to the Father. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm with him. I am sitting down with the Father and I want to get you to him. I want you to trust me. I want you to follow me. And so there is a new covenant enacted. As the law has revealed our need and our utter inability. That we should, it should make us look up and go, okay, that didn't work. What's the plan? I feel the separation. I feel like I can't get to God. So how do I get to him if I'm not able to do it myself? How do I do it? And so what he does, the author here, is he quotes in verses 8 through 12 from Jeremiah 31. 
verses 31 through 34. And he quotes the promise of this new covenant coming. And there's three things that he says this new covenant will look different. Look in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's saying it's not just going to be this thing out there. It's not going to be rote activity. It's not going to be rote memorization of just trying to like, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. He's like, I'm going to seal your hearts and your minds. You're going to have soft hearts is what Ezekiel 36 says. Then he's going to remove these cold calloused, numb, stony hearts of sin. And he's going to replace it with a a heart that has been stamped by the King, by our Creator. Then he's going to give us new hearts. Ephesians 2, Paul says it this way, that we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses and that he breathes life into us. That it's not just that we're going to try harder to do better. It's that we are dead in our sins. And that we need life. And this new covenant is going to breathe life into us. That the Spirit is going to be placed within believers to reside and to remain. Paul says it's the seal of the promise of this covenant that all the things that God has promised us will come when we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That He is ours because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. That He is making us alive internally. And not just with external behavior and sacrifices and systems. So he's going to put it in our heart and in our mind. The second thing is this. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor. And each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So he's saying this. Like I'm going to be yours. And if we look back throughout Scripture in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden, and God is with them. That was the point, that He was with them, that things were right and perfect and harmonious. If we go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Verse 23. But this command I gave them. He's talking about the, the people of Israel after He's left Egypt with them. He says, obey my voice. Listen to the words here. And I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And they went backwards and not forwards from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck and they did worse than their fathers. So do you see what he's saying? He's like, when I called them out of Egypt, I said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. Right? It's a reiteration of what we see in Genesis of what the creation intent was, that we are meant to be with God. Like that's where we belong. And then we see why the the first covenant was faulty was because they were a stiff-necked and rebellious people who did what they wanted, not what God had called them to. And even when their hearts were inclined or intended to do it, they didn't keep up with it. So when we studied through the prophet Amos earlier this year, we saw a people who just began to think, 
God has made a special deal with us so we can do what we want because he's done his thing. He's going to protect us. He's going to keep us. And now they're not even trying to follow God. And so we see God's wrath and his anger and his judgment coming against his people because they're not willing to keep the covenant. So Genesis tells us that where we belong is with God. Jeremiah 7 tells us that when God rescued them, that he wanted to be their God for us to be his people. And in Revelation 21, as we come to the end of Scripture, right, the point, the beauty of heaven is this, is that God is there and he says that I am going to be with you. We are with him and he is with us. It's what we were created for. It's what we're intended for. And so this new covenant now is saying this. I'm going to stamp your hearts and your minds with my word. But listen, so that I can be your God, so that you'll be my people. And we're not going to be dependent upon people saying, hey, you should know God. And then trusting them that what they've heard from God is sufficient. He's saying, I'm going to know you as an individual. Right? That I'm going to call your name and I'm going to woo you and I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to make you a son or a daughter. And right, he brings us together as a family, a church family, but that individually we can know God. That we're not just aware that there is a creator, we're not just aware that there is a God, but we can have a relationship with him, it's personal. And then there's no special class of people that get to know God and others don't. Right? From the least of them, in verse 11, to the greatest, that every ethnicity, every eco, um, economic standard, every education standard, every type of people can know God. There's not like some special club in which you figure it out and you get to Him. He rescues us. He reveals Himself. And the third thing is this. It's not just that He's going to put it on our heart, that He's going to be ours, but He begins to reveal His character. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He is revealing his character. Right? He's showing forgiveness. And, and here's the thing. This covenant is doing a lot of what the old covenant did. In Exodus 34, he's laying it out. In verse 7, he says this. I will keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Right? He's saying, like, I, I will forgive. This is who I am. And I'm slow to anger. And now here he's saying, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. And I will remember their sin no more. Listen, when we, it's not that God is forgetful. It's that God in his power chooses when we confess our sin, when we repent from our sin, it is cleansed by Jesus and he forgets it. And I think often when we think of God, we think of him holding our sin up there, waiting to rub our face in it. Do you remember who you are? Do you remember what you've done? Why, would, why do you think you could ask me that? Why do you think you could come to me? And yet we know fathers, good fathers and mothers, right? who knowing their, sin, their children's struggle and sin and issues aren't looking to rub their face in their sin, but they're looking to be gracious and patient and persevering and long-suffering and encouraging, wanting to see them grow. And yet we think of God, He knows what I've done, I can't go to Him. And He's saying, no, 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 no. It's been paid for in Christ. Jesus has paid for it. Justice has been meted out. Punishment and discipline have been done. And you just didn't have to pay for it. So now come to your Father. Right? 
you have access to him. You can come boldly before the throne room of grace. He is not waiting to rub our face in it. Justice has been paid for. He's calling us to him. So he's revealing his character. Now, what I want us to notice about all three of this is that God's the one who does it. Look at verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. Right? He then says, um, I will be their God. And then in verse 12, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities. He does it. We don't figure this thing out and come to him. He does it. He reveals himself. He rescues us. He calls us. He is the one who is merciful. It is not our religious attempts to figure out God. It's his great, gracious, sovereign design to make us his. To rescue us. Which has a bit of an aside here. I think in West Texas sometimes, because we live in such a religious context, that if you as an adult come to faith, if you feel like, man, I actually, I think I know him. I think he's stamped my heart. I think he's opened my eyes. I think I'm his and he's mine. That you're ashamed of that. Because you should have done it when you were eight. Right? Because you should have done that when you were a kid. And we begin to look at people and we say, you know, if you were really a good person, you would have been a Christian your whole life. You don't decide that. Right? We can decide to be religious. You don't decide for God to save you. God says, I will do this for you. I will do this to you. I will make you mine. And so, y'all, whether you are eight or 18 or 88, when Jesus saves, it is a miracle and it is to be rejoiced in and worshiped with gratitude that he has rescued me. And so there may be some of you here that when you tell your story, you're like, yeah, yeah, I prayed a prayer and walked an aisle when I was seven. And you know full well that you were in your 20s or 30s or 40s when Jesus opened your eyes and, and you really trusted him and he rescued you. But you feel like you've got to share this other story because there's a little bit of shame in like that God saved me late. There's no shame. There's gratitude. There is rescue that God would save any. Because what we deserve is separation. It's, it's damnation. And so when God saves, it is a miracle of grace. So what Hebrews has done is this. It has told us. It has reminded us. There is a problem. There is separation between us and God. And you know this intuitively. Whether you claim Jesus this morning or not, you know that something is broken in this world. Right When you sit at a funeral, you know, ah, we're not, this isn't supposed to be this way. We're not supposed to lose people. We're not supposed to be separated. right? Because eternity is crying in your heart that we're meant to be with God forever. When you're in relationships with people that you love, and you're like, why is this so hard? Like, I love you and I hate you. Right? Whether that is with a parent or a child. Whether that's with a friend or a spouse. You're like, how can I feel such convoluted, complicated things? We're like, it shouldn't be this hard. You're right, it shouldn't. But we live in a broken and affected world by sin and rebellion. And so the problem is evidence. And the solution we know is to be with God. So we've got this separation and we know the solution is to be with God. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is this. That Jesus steps in to mediate as the go-between between a fallen, separated people, rebels, with a holy God. 
he steps in to mediate, to say, I will be the high priest that takes these people and gets them to this God. And I will do it once and for all, and I will sit down, and you will know me, and you will trust me, and you will worship me, because I've done what you could not do. Look at verse 9. He says, I made a covenant with their fathers on the day, listen to this language, when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. Right? You picture God, it's like grabbing a child and pulling them along and saying, you're going to come with me now. You're going to be mine. God rescued them from slavery, from death, from a harsh taskmaster, from false religion, false gods, from a life of purposeless meaninglessness to make them his people. Church, Jesus is saying when he calls your name, he is taking you by the hand. And he's saying, let me take you to the Father. Let me take you to the place where you belong. So that means addiction goes away. Right? It means pain and meaninglessness, mean, meaninglessness in life. It means self-worship or self-loathing. These things that we build our life on, or maybe it's religious activity, that he takes you and he says, I want to take you to the Father. You can't get there, but I've got you. Right? And, and so he begins to loom large and loom big in our life because he has done what we could not do. And so now worship is not just something we do for an hour on Sunday mornings where we sing a few songs, we do our due diligence, and we leave and go do our thing. He says now all of life is worship. The way that you think, the way that you talk, the way that you spend money, the way that you are at work or in relationships, all of it, all of life, right, is worship. So it is more than the songs and the services. It's more than bumper stickers. It is trusting and obeying. It's having faith that what Jesus has done is sufficient to rescue you. And if, it, if it's enough to rescue me, then I want more of him. And I want to know him and I want to follow him. In every area of my life. So one practical way, and then we're gonna we're gonna be done. Here's the thing: I'm a dad, and there are times where I lose it with my kids, right? Where and listen, it's not saying they're innocent, right? But there are just moments where you're like, you know what? I don't I don't care. Like we're gonna stop this madness, and you and you say and you do things that you you regret, and in those moments. Right now, I'm going. Okay, well, I'm the I'm the parent. What do I need to model here? I just want them to, to like to listen and to, like to control them. If I'm honest, and and so as I'm wrestling with these things, right, I need to understand that when I lose it with my kids, I am not reflecting God's character. I'm not honoring Him, right. And so that's not worship because I'm not trusting Him. That when I when I actually am long suffering and gracious and patient, that is worship. Right, so that I can worship in my parenting and I cannot worship in my parenting. And here's the thing you're going, man, I lose it all the time. Forgiveness is available. Right? Because we're not our own Savior. Our Savior has come and done it for us, He has rescued us. And so when you fail, whether you fail 10 times today, right, or 100 times, right, He's saying, you come and you repent and you trust me. That what I have done is sufficient for you. And I've got you. Right? And so when we are doing these honorable things, when we are rightly reflecting the character of God, it is not because you have figured something out and you're better than others. It's because God is shining through you in Christ.
And you point to him and say, no, no, don't look at me, look at him. And when you're failing, then you go to the one who has offered grace and forgiveness to stamp your hearts, to, to say, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. Some of you just need to hear that this morning. You know and trust and follow Jesus, but you need to be reminded this morning that he has said about his people, I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He is gracious to us. And we want to reflect that graciousness. And when we don't, we still receive it so that we can then offer it. So as we end, has he called you? Has he made you his? Or right now would you say my life is built around religion, but not about like knowing Jesus? Has he called you? And if he has, if you know him, like, do you treasure him this morning? Like, do you look at him and say, you have rescued me. The gratitude pouring forth for me cannot begin to be contained on a Sunday morning. Right? Like, I've, uh, these, these things that you've done, you have rescued me. Or does Jesus look small to you this morning? Right? If he looks small, something is off. Something is wrong. We are thinking... And elevating ourselves too much and, and not looking at Jesus right. Because he has done what we could not do. And he has taken us by the hand. And he has led us to the Father. And his hand is strong. And his grip is good. And we will not be removed from his hand. But church, you can't do it without him. You don't get to the Father without him. So this morning, if he is calling you. If he's saying, look, I don't want you to be religious any longer. I want you to know me. Right? Would you respond to that? If, if your view of Jesus is small this morning, would you ask the Spirit to stir something in you to break hard places that would have stunted that growth? And would we respond, whether you're going to go to the back and pray with someone in the back, if you're going to sit in your chair, if you're going to stand and sing, that we would worship our Savior, our Rescuer. Listen. He led them out of Egypt. He gave them himself. And then he says, now obey me. Church, he rescues us, not because of your obedience, but because of his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness. And then he calls us to look like him for the rest of our lives, to grow in that, to figure that out. Right? Through the power of his spirit, through his word, and through his people. That we now have the power, the fuel we need to match our intent. Because we've been given the spirit. His word and his people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are our high priest. Thank you that that you have given us access to the holy places, that we have hope of heaven because you have paid what we could not pay, you have done what we could not do. Lord, if if our view of you is small or weak this morning, God, would you give us a bigger view? Would you begin to break loose things in our mind, in our heart, in our eyes, in our life? God, if it's sin that needs to be confessed, if it's areas that we just aren't believing, Father, if it's that we have um, not seen your character rightly, that you are merciful and that you are gracious and you're not looking to crush us, God, would we see you as Father this morning? Would you speak? Would you reveal? Would you work? And would we respond with courage, with faith, 
trusting Jesus, what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.